You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And I have with me today uh, AICGS Senior Fellow and Director of the Geoeconomics Program, Peter Rashish. And we are delighted to have with us as a guest in this episode, Jakob von Weizsäcker. He is the Chief Economist at the German Finance Ministry, a position he's held since 2019. So as Director General, um, he heads the Department for Economic Policy in one of Germany's most important government ministries. Jakob von Weizsäcker has uh, had a long career with remarkable breadth, I think I can say. He has worked at the World Bank here in Washington. He has been an economic researcher at a couple of think tanks, uh, so he knows this game inside and out. He was also a member of the European Parliament from 2014 to 2019. So uh, the, he brings experience that goes well beyond, I think, what, uh, uh, what is normal in these kinds of positions. And uh, I wanna welcome you, Jakob von Weizsäcker. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, uh, some policy areas, including climate policy, um, uh, which of course was a feature of the election campaign that just concluded eight days ago in Germany. Um, but. If I, if I could start off, I, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what the German elections say about economic and financial policy direction, if, if it's possible to say anything at this early stage. Obviously, um, the coalition negotiations uh, are still very much ongoing. In a technical sense, they haven't even started yet. So it's maybe a bit early to, to try and uh, sort of guess uh, where the outcome is going to be. But I think the election result, of course, is, is very clear in that um, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the, the main winners of this election have been the Social Democrats, who against all odds became the strongest party and will be the strongest group uh, in the Bundestag. The Greens, who have not been as successful as certain polls were predicting, but uh, have had the largest gains of, um, uh, of, of all parties. So there's a clearly a sort of the social, the ecological, and of course, uh, the, the liberals uh, were, were um, made important gains in the election. And that's why uh, uh, my baseline expectation would be that uh, we, we might end up with what we call a traffic light coalition. Uh, with red, uh, um, yellow, and green um, being being part of that coalition, uh, and I would say it's it's sort of sort of a centrist, progressive, um, uh, um, interested in in economic efficiency, in uh, um, in, in achieving our our climate and environmental objectives, and keeping the social balance. To me, it seems to be a fairly attractive. A combination, um, but uh, what this might mean in practice is very much up to the negotiation parties to, to figure out. Um, and of course, there are certain areas where it's by no means easy to come together, but uh, I would definitely think it's possible. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that's uh, certainly something we'll be we'll all be watching very carefully and with great interest uh, in the coming in the coming weeks as those coalition talks uh, move uh, move forward. Um, and before we get into the um, the areas of domestic priority, could I ask where do you see the major international opportunities, and in particular uh, transatlantic economic and financial cooperation? Um, you know, th there is there has been an initiative at the G7 level um, this summer, the so-called Build Back Better World initiative. Um, uh, but are there areas that stand out for you um, where the transatlantic community can make um, can make a lot of progress um, in the in the months and years to come? Oh, I I I, th I think I think definitely, um, and I, I'm not certain whether the the German election is going to be the critical moment in that. I think the U.S. presidential election was the critical moment in uh, uh, you know uh, really intensifying the transatlantic relationship again. Um, and uh, and uh, and synchronizing, frankly, more some of the policy outlooks, both globally and 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 transatlantically, um, and and so uh, I think uh, there'll be in that spirit a lot of continuity in making the most um, of a, a much easier. I mean, it's, it's uh, important differences, of course, remain, but a much much easier um, a relationship, which. Uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, in, um, it, it really is going to be played in, 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 in a trans transatlantic partnership in the true and traditional sense of the word, uh, rather than what perhaps it might have become uh, during the, the Trump administration, where things were a little bit more difficult at times. And uh, so I think uh, there, there are enormous opportunities there, um, and, and perhaps most importantly, because that's very much on people's minds on both sides of the Atlantic, is making certain uh, that we achieve, uh, and we're we're having this conversation just uh, uh, you know weeks before uh, COP26 in Glasgow. Um, uh, um, we 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 can get the world on track uh, for um, a, a climate objective in line uh, in line with the Paris Agreement, and uh, you know um, the US rejoined the Paris Agreement um, is now very much on track on domestically. Uh, moving forward. There are some issues, of course, in, in Congress that need to be sorted out. Um, and similarly, with the Fit for 55 package at the European level, uh, with a, a German government that in all likelihood will include the Greens uh, as one of the coalition partners, uh, I, th I think we're really set uh, for, for major progress in that area. Um, and in order to do this well, a lot of uh, transatlantic um, a, a cooperation will be required, and I have no doubt will will also happen. Uh, and that might actually bring us to one important uh, policy project at the European level, which is called Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, that tries to somehow um, a, a, come up with a solution to the problem that for some time to come, in the road towards climate neutrality of this planet, there will be different levels of carbon pricing in different parts of the world. And uh, that is a, a very real problem because if, if it's not addressed at all, either we go on you know, allocating to a certain industry these carbon certificates for free, which is a problem for, for the climate, uh, or we don't uh, and do nothing about it, then it becomes a problem for competitiveness. So something needs to 
be, 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 be developed on that front. At the same time, we definitely need to avoid kind of proliferation and fragmentation, uh, a, a proliferation of different systems in that regard and the fragmentation of the global economy that would be extremely damaging. And, and so I think uh, transatlantically, we have a very important uh, a role to play in order to find ways in which we come together in, in, in a situation where for the time being, of course, in the US, it's not politically possible uh, to have a, uh, have a carbon price. Uh, and uh, um, I want to point out that in, in light of, of these facts, uh, um, my minister and the German government overall um, have developed, was, was one of the last uh, um, uh, uh, pieces they discussed in cabinet, the proposal for a climate club with very much an open architecture. So this isn't just sort of a couple of uh, uh, rich countries getting together, making life difficult for the rest of the world. That would be disastrous for international climate diplomacy, but an open architecture that invites countries with similarly, uh, similarly ambitious targets, but of course, uh, well-adjusted to their level um, of economic development to come together and to find better ways uh, to deal with this problem of carbon leakage in a world where CO2 prices remain somewhat different. Uh, and, uh, and we, of course, want to stop um, these differences to cause too much trouble uh, in environmental and, and competitiveness terms. And, and that's, I think, uh, very much a worthwhile proposal which could, uh, of course, in the transatlantic relationship help a lot because the Biden administration is, is going a long way uh, with regulation, with certain types of investment of, if you will, organize an implicit a carbon price, even if, even if it's not an explicit one. And so questions of equivalence, uh, they certainly merit a closer look. That's a process that the OECD has now launched uh, and so it will be fascinating uh, 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 area of transatlantic cooperation. That is not an easy one, but I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, that on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a keen willingness uh, to make the success. So in the interest of our bilateral uh, uh, relationship, but also uh, much more importantly, still in the interest of, of, of uh, meeting our climate objectives overall globally. Bianco, let's dig a little deeper uh, into uh, climate and also uh, the vice chancellor's um, uh, climate club proposal, which, as you say, is now a, a formal position of the entire German government. Um, it, the way, if I understand correctly, um, it was framed in part as a way for Germany and other countries to meet their Paris commitments. Uh, is that is that is that it? Is the Paris framework? Uh, the main thing driving this, or are there other factors that are at least are strong or stronger? Well, I think it's the, very much the starting point. I mean, if you take uh, the European system of ETS, this is our um, basically our carbon pricing system. Then today, for competitiveness reasons, uh, many energy intensive industry that are subject to competition from abroad via imports and which are competing in the world market via exports, receive their um, CO2 emission certificates for free rather than paying for them. Now, this is something that cannot go on 
because our climate targets, including our intermediary ones, but our climate target uh, is to be um, carbon neutral in 2045 in Germany and 2050 at the level of the EU, they're not compatible with simply prolonging that free allocation of certificates forever. It is not possible because if we continue with that free allocation of certificates, these emissions will continue and we will not be able to meet our Paris Agreement. And well before 2045 or 2050, um, if we uh, um, continue with the free allocation of, of these emission certificates, um, we would uh, basically render our emissions trading system useless because an ever-increasing share of the emissions would be basically given away for free. So that is a, a fundamental driver of that policy agenda that by the early 2030s, at the latest, um, the situation would become completely untenable if we were to extrapolate our current way of dealing with carbon leakage. So in other words, yes, uh, it, the primary uh, reason why we're talking about this in the first place is that the present system of addressing carbon leakage issues and competitive issues in the context um, of carbon pricing cannot continue like that. And we need something else. Uh, and that's why we are talking about it now. It doesn't mean, and I think that is going to make a solution much, much easier to come by, that tomorrow everything needs to be perfect. There, we still have a number of years ahead of us where we could in principle continue a little bit like we are before, but given the enormous complexity of carbon border adjustment on the one hand, and even more complex international uh, negotiations, if we want to end up, which would be far preferable with the Carbon Club on the other hand, we need to start this discussion now so that we manage uh, to have a solution in time for when, uh, uh, certainly in Europe, uh, the, the, the current system would have completely run its course and could would have to be discontinued one way or another. You, you mentioned earlier that an important consideration of the Climate Club is to find equivalents among perhaps differing ways of measuring carbon uh, and you know, the fact that some countries might have more of an implicit carbon, pr carbon price and others might more have an explicit one. And I'm not, I don't mean to draw you out on US politics, but there was a proposal over the summer from Senator Chris Coons and uh, Representative Scott Peters, two Democrats in Congress, for something that looks like um, a carbon border adjustment um, uh, mechanism, uh, like the one that the EU has. But of course, the US relies mostly on regulation and standards. There are some regional emissions trading systems, but they don't cover the whole country. So you're, you're optimistic that in a climate club, there'd be room to accommodate these different approaches. Well, in the climate club, it would be very important because of course, in the end, we're not sort of in the abstract talking about some sort of average carbon prices being explicit or implicit. In the end, um, the emissions and the competition happen sectorally. And so the details, no matter what, are extremely important. For example, right now in the EU, there are certain sectors that are simply not included in the ETS, in our emissions trading system. Um, there are other emissions trading system in the world that have a different coverage. So even if one were just to stay in the realm of explicit carbon pricing, in order for anything to work internationally, one would have to have a very, very good mapping 
of who is affected, how much, in which area, for what activity. And uh, of course it makes sense to then also include, if you have rules and regulations, if you have certain kind of cap and trade mechanisms, uh, to also include them in the fold and analyze them. And I think typically what one will find is that at the margin, sort of concerning the last ton of CO2 you emit, uh, emit for a certain activity, the regulation often can be very much equivalent to a carbon price. However, intramarginally, if sort of you fulfill the standard that is required um, and within that standard still do emissions, then typically intramarginally, these emissions are for free. You wouldn't be paying for them. So compared to a system where one doesn't do this via regulation, but where one does it via carbon pricing, at the margin, it seems awfully close to one another, which it is, but in terms of, you know, how much do you pay for those tons of CO2 you emit anyway within that standard? And there, of course, there would be a slight competitive advantage in, in countries where it's just done via regulation. So it is, it is a tricky business, but it is a business that is unavoidable if we want to do justice to the climate challenge and if we want to do justice to the competitiveness challenge that comes with the fact that different countries use slightly different approaches. And um, uh, very much in the spirit of the Biden's administration of you know, policy for the middle class, it, is, it, it does matter what the impact of these differences is on employment in certain sectors. And so it's perfectly natural as part of that mapping to have that in mind. And I don't find it surprising even though you're absolutely right, uh, the US doesn't have an explicit national carbon pricing yet. It, of course, exists in California, uh, for example, but, um, uh, but to have a national discussion right now that is, is a little bit similar to uh, carbon border adjustment ideas. I think it just underscores the point um, that if we are not careful, if we don't manage to have an international process that looks at that particular problem, we're going to end up with a proliferation of super complicated national border adjustment systems that are not going to be terribly good uh, for the global economy and probably not going to be the best solution for the climate either. And I think that's what makes the, the, the climate club idea so attractive. So if I could add, if I could maybe broaden the, the aperture a little bit, um, because you've mentioned the um, the, the particular problems in energy intensive industries. Um, and of course, we're all aware that the United States and the European Union have roughly equivalent levels of emissions, um, but they fall far behind China um, in its uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so is this climate club also a way of um, trying to encourage uh, not only um, those in the club, but also to orchestrate diplomatic um, pressure on countries outside the club to accelerate their uh, timetables, to raise their ambitions, um, because clearly, you know, China's plan for when it reaches peak emissions and carbon neutrality lags well behind that of, of, uh, of Europe and, uh, and the proposals of the Biden administration for the United States. Yeah, so I think it's very important not to think of the club as a kind of rich countries club and um, protecting themselves against uh, um, emerging economies or low income economies. 
I think from a climate diplomacy perspective, that would be a disaster. Um, uh, this needs to be an open architecture club where anybody can join. It's not like sort of your, your average country club around the corner where only certain types might be admitted. So perhaps the, the, the wording, calling it a club, might be slightly dangerous, but, the, um, but, but, but perhaps because uh, um, uh, distinguished uh, economists like, uh, like Bill Nordhaus uh, uh, um, started calling it a club, we'll call it a club. But I think what's very important, this is an open club. This is a club where anybody, you can apply yourself, you don't need to be proposed. And if um, you want to be serious about uh, you know, doing what your country can do in terms of uh, saving our climate, um, then it, 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 it needs to, it, you need to be admitted. Um, and so you can't be blackballed by somebody saying, oh, I, I don't like that particular place. For as long as they want to be serious um, uh, on climate protection and want to play it by the rules, it needs to be open. And uh, of course, with China, um, even though they're not on exactly the same schedule um, uh, with 2060, they're still on an ambitious schedule given where they are today and given where they've been historically. Uh, so I think uh, um, it would be uh, um, ideal uh, to have a, a transatlantic um, a, a, a partnership that also includes countries like China, uh, which clearly have an agenda that wants to uh, you know, do what, it, what it, it can do in order to save the climate. And then it's a matter of individual negotiations to see. There are other uh, countries, of course, large emerging economies that don't yet have such a clear commitment uh, to climate neutrality and may not have uh, yet such sophisticated plans. So I think this open architecture idea is very important. It's very important not to think of it as a, uh, as, uh, as a sort of country club for privileged uh, people or countries. Um, but at the same time, it's very important that one is clear about it uh, in order to join this club, one does need to be serious uh, uh, about climate protection but obviously it won't be um, sort of according to the same schedule for everybody. Um, Germany, for example, is going to be five years ahead of the rest, uh, or at least um, parts of the EU in terms of uh, when it wants to achieve climate uh, neutrality. Other countries uh, for low income economies to be a little bit behind uh, 2050. Um, uh, I, I guess it's difficult for us to, to complain uh, given um, how much historically um, in the US or, or in Europe has already been ad admitted. So I don't think one should have a fetish of everybody doing exactly the same, but it needs to be clear that this club has high standards in terms of uh, the joint uh, ambition um, and uh, the joint practice of um, achieving uh, carbon neutrality uh, and a joint ambition um, in explicit or implicit carbon pricing. And, and, and that's what in, in, in the end is going to be decisive. Uh, I, I hope that answers your question a bit. Um, Jakob, do you think the emergence of a climate club would put extra pressure on the advanced economies to make good on their commitment to 100 billion in financing to help less developed countries to meet their own climate um, commitments in the Paris context? I mean, one of the things about uh, the, this 100 billion that has talked about a lot is that we're not quite there yet, 100 billion per year per annum. Um, um, that is very much on people's mind. What is not so much on people's mind, if you look at the details, 
this 100 billion, when it, if and when it materializes, it needs to materialize, of course, um, it's really adding apples and oranges and pears and uh, you know what, because uh, it could be grants, but most often they're credits, often they're not super concessional credits. So what's in those 100 billion in terms of net present value um, often won't be all that much. Um, so I think one of the great opportunities of a climate club is that it would be much more transparent if a country, for example, a low-income country said, well, I want to join the club, but I have this special problem because I have a large steel plant um, and it's politically very important uh, and the employment there is very important. If you can help us um, to transform that steel plant into uh, producing green steel, then as an entire country, we can come into the fold. I think in that kind of, it's, that's very concrete. It's more concrete uh, than in the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. In that kind of concreteness, it should be much easier for um, some of the richer countries in the club to say, wait a minute, that seems like an attractive deal. After all, we want to save the climate. If it's a one-off investment, in order to help them transform a particular industry. And we have the same problem everywhere. We just paid an inordinate amount of money in order to phase out coal uh, by 2038. I mean, it's uh, more than 1% of GDP for regional support for employment support and so on. So, so, so these are real problems. They're the kind of problems you have in the US as well. So within the architecture of that club, I think you know, really putting one's money where one's mouth is in a sense, becomes much easier, and uh, in that sense, I would, uh, I, I would, uh, I would answer your question. Yes, indeed, um, the climate club can help uh, for richer countries uh, to, uh, uh, to to fulfil their promises in in terms of climate financing, and also have a very clear idea of what one would be getting in return. And and so I think um, uh, clearly the climate club idea. Can, could could build on the Paris Agreement idea in a good way. And, and, and again, I, I need to underline this in a way that would not fall into this extremely dangerous political club of saying, well, we're sort of this, uh, the, 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 this, this group of rich countries who want to uh, shut their markets off from imports uh, by poorer countries um, um, with using the pretext of, of climate policy. That shouldn't be the spirit nor the practice of what the Climate Club is about. Uh, and uh, in addition to you know, much easier market access, uh, part of the story would, of course, uh, have to be support measures in order to help countries join that club. Jakob, um, uh, if, if I can switch gears a little bit um, for a second, um, because you've been very generous with your time. And, um, uh, but I want to touch also on um, EU policy beyond the climate uh, beyond the climate issue of course one of the um, most uh, outstanding features um, at the EU level uh, over the last couple of years especially during the pandemic has been the next generation EU um, uh, initiative um, what do you think that says about the future of economic integration um, and uh, I don't want to use the word model because I know that's a little bit charged in a German political context, but uh, what does that tell us about the future of EU economic policy in your view? And first of all, uh, of course, next generation EU isn't at all over yet. 
it's very much in the middle of, uh, you know, the money has started to flow uh, for those countries who've submitted their plans and who've had them approved by the European Commission. It, it was a huge um, uh, measure, a stabilizing measure for economic confidence, but also political confidence in, in a very difficult period, uh, the COVID crisis. I think it's an enormous achievement in order to, have, uh, you know, in order to stabilize the economy during this crisis, but it's also an enormous achievement because it's really built on longer-term sustainable growth agenda, with a lot of the money having to be spent on greening the economy, a lot of the money having to be spent on digitalization, and specifically helping countries in more difficult positions uh, with respect to the economy, with respect to the COVID impact. Um, some countries are receiving, if you add the grant and the credit element together, more than 10% of GDP. This is very substantial uh, support. And um, I think for now, what matters most is that these funds that are provided by the European taxpayers, all countries are receiving grants. Uh, many countries have requested the credit element as well, that this money is well spent. And if this money is well spent, I think European taxpayers, they're going to say, look, uh, this was, of course, a new, unique situation. But if a similar crisis situation were to reemerge, uh, we have a blueprint, which before we didn't have. That's why it took so long to cobble this together. But we, we now have a blueprint for how it can work. And we can trust our European partners overall um, sufficiently that they'll do the right thing with those funds and really, as a result, move their economies forward and move the economy of Europe uh, forward uh, overall and uh, in, 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 in the best interest of it all, uh, as all. And for now, it's looking good um, that this positive spirit, combining clever investment programs with targeted reforms in areas where it really matters, is what is the outcome of this next generation EU. And looking forward, and I think that's really what we, you were after we, we, with your question, um, I definitely think if, if this, the implementation goes well, this is going to serve as an extremely useful blueprint. Um, and beyond that, it may actually be the kind of trust-building measure that then helps us to strengthen um, the institutional architecture of um, the euro area and the EU overall in order to strengthen what we economists call the European fiscal capacity. So in other words, to have a more meaningful European fisc in addition to the fisc of, of the member states themselves, which of course would be an enormous institutional development. And that is why, of course, uh, my minister um, at the time also said, well, to some extent, one could even uh, sort of think about it as a, as a Hamiltonian moment. but. Uh, uh, the Hamiltonian moment, of course, in the spirit of what I just told you, is something that would need to unfold as a result of um, these programs working well, of the money being spent well, of a general public being convinced that this is the right way to go. But I think we have an opportunity here. And, and so far, I think it's fair to say that by and large, um, the programs are on track to achieving that, which would be wonderful. If we have time for one more question, um, and it's a short one, inflation, are you worried? I think the situation and the discussion about inflation 
may be a little bit different uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. I think there's nothing wrong with that because the, the objectively the situation may be a little bit different and that's why the discussion is a little bit uh, different. And so one shouldn't necessarily conflate the two discussions, even though that's sometimes happening, because of course uh, we're closely observing what's happening in, in the US, and to some extent, at least some people also closely observe uh, people like you, what's going on in, in, in Europe. So I think, I think it's important to, to note that there are certain differences, but I think it's also important to note that there are some similarities. Um, uh, for a long time, there was a relatively broad-based consensus we're in this low for long world where interest rates are going to remain ultra low. And that of course has implications for the ability of monetary policy and in, in, in Europe where the ECB was at the zero low bound has been for a very long time, which is a big constraint when you think of macro stabilization, which also raises some interesting questions for how likely is it that bubbles can emerge if you know net present value calculus no longer gives you a meaningful result. So there are all kinds of issues uh, to, to do with that. Um, and as a result, uh, also making it more attractive, of course, to engage in, um, in, in, in profitable public investments. Uh, if the private sector doesn't uh, you know, make the best use of, um, of, of, of the savings that are available, then, then of course the public uh, sector can st step in. And now with the COVID crisis, of course, uh, we did that, and, and that's a big success. I mean, it's not only next generation EU, overall in Europe, there was enormous fiscal support, rightly so, in order uh, to help us get through the crisis in, in better shape. Um, and, and now, uh, of course, part of uh, this support uh, was necessary because a lot of people were worried and they saved a, a lot uh, privately. Uh, and now it's an interesting question, what happens when these savings then are released? And, and, and that's something we're seeing in the US. And that's something we're seeing for now to a lesser extent in Europe. Um, so a, a lot of the inflation headline numbers in Europe are, are really the outcome of um, uh, um, energy prices going down by a lot in the middle of the COVID prices now coming up again, uh, VAT, for example, in Germany, having been brought down as a stimulus measure, now it's being increased again. Of course, uh, we had deflation uh, uh, last time around. Now we have much higher levels. If you look at the average, it's actually not that much going on. Um, so I think we need to be very careful um, uh, how we analyze the facts. Um, we need to uh, um, uh, uh, watch with great interest how uh, the, the sort of great savings uh, that were accumulated during the COVID crisis, how they're being released, if they're being released, when they're being released. Um, and, and then of course, central banks need to be uh, watch out if they're, if they're second round effects, if inflation really were to come back, um, it's their mandate to, to tackle that. Um, and I have no doubt they will. But the idea, just because the headline figures are now very high, whereas the underlying inflation rate for now is not very high, certainly in Europe, um, to, to fall into the trap of you know, lecturing uh, the ECB of how uh, they, they should be doing their job, I think uh, 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 that can, can be problematic and we need to be very careful. And there's a good reason why we have independent central banks, both because you know, when they start fighting inflation, um, it, 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 it can have uh, certain effects in the, on the economy that some 
governments may not like, but also because sometimes um, being um, a, a bit more objective, looking at the numbers uh, rather than just uh, the, the underlying trends, rather than just the headline figures, that may not be what certain public debates are asking for, but it will simply be uh, the right thing to do in monetary policy terms. So I think having a bit of expertocracy on that front, and we have a fiercely independent ECB in, in Europe modeled after the Bundesbank, uh, I think is a good thing. And, and, and the current discussion, I think, is showing. Well, uh, you know, this has been our first episode of the Zeitgeist after a little bit of a pause during the summer, and it was worth the wait. Um, so, uh, you know, I want to thank you, Jakob von Weizsäcker, for a very wide-ranging discussion that has talked about the transatlantic partnership and a partnership beyond the transatlantic space uh, on climate issues, uh, and has highlighted you know, the the views on some of the key uh, economic policy issues uh, in Europe and globally. So for this really rich discussion, uh, thank you. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, we look forward to having you with us uh, in future episodes of the Zeitgeist. Um, be well, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be back in touch. Thanks so much, Jakob. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.